Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25. Here's to the winning combination for 2023, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, while supplies last. You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the L.A. Kings. I follow. Jars it free out of the corner. I follow to Velarde. Score! Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. On Saturday, Jim Fox joined me from New York for a road report via Twitter Spaces. If you're not sure what Twitter Spaces is, it's talk radio on Twitter. If you heard it live, thanks for tuning in. If you missed it, here's the replay. Before we get to that, I just want to mention that Andre Kopitar is the king of the week this week. Sean Dursey is the runner-up. Victor Arvidsson is the honorable mention. The trade deadline is Friday, this week, like five days away, so I'm trying to keep my schedule as flexible as possible to manage any and all trades that impact the Kings season between now and then. Rest assured, if any trades are made, we will rush to get analysis and hopefully interviews with any players impacted uh, out to you as soon as possible. So far, it seems like the only team making moves that might actually directly impact the Kings playoff chase this season is Vegas and whatever they're cooking up out there in Nevada. Not much ground to cover just yet, but we will recap all of it once the deadline is passed. Okay, here's my conversation with Jim Fox from Saturday, and please keep in mind this was recorded before the loss to the Rangers. All right, it is noon. We're going to start this uh, Twitter space with Jim Fox, assuming everybody can hear me. Jim, can you hear me? I can hear you, Jesse. Excellent. Thank you. I can hear you as well. Uh, we've got a couple of people in here, so I'm going to start off talking about last night's game before I get into questions. I've collected a bunch. Uh, but as always, if you are in the uh, lobby right now and you want to ask Jim a question directly, go ahead, request to be a speaker. We'll go ahead and add you after we talk about these first three topics, Jim, I want to dive into about last night's game. Um, for starters, what does it mean for the team for the fans, for you personally, that uh, Jonathan Quick is 3-0 and in his last three games? Yeah, well, I mean, it means a lot. Uh, becomes a lot more positive. And again, I don't think it vaults him into a position as of yet where he would take over uh, what you would call the temporary number one situation. That it belongs to Phoenix Copley, but uh, there certainly was a little bit of concern. Uh, I think that another thing that just you know, it just came to the forefront with everyone here in the traveling group is that, you know, he moved up on the all-time list for American Tenders and Wins. And, you know, that's it's just something that in a long season you can celebrate. And it leads you to just look back on what I believe is a Hall of Fame career. Was there anything about his play last night or over the last few games that, that you've noticed an improvement? Or was it just a matter of the team playing well in front of him, getting the good bounces? No, I, I don't see that. I don't see a difference. I see that perhaps a little bit more control by Jonathan. Uh, I think there was one rebound that became an issue. So that control of rebounds would be something. Um, that's, that's something that stands out to me last night. Uh, I think in general, yes, I'm going to give credit to the Kings and the defensive structure and the focus they had. But in all honesty, I think that the Islanders, because of their injuries, do not have a lot of offense to throw at the opposition right now. Second topic I wanted to hit on last night's game, and again, if you're in the room here and you want to ask Jim or myself a question, go ahead, request to be a speaker. Uh, if you're listening on a laptop, you won't be able to do that, but if you're on a phone, uh, you will be able to. Jim, the next question I have is, what does it mean for the team that they were able to hold on to a lead with a team pressing near the end of the game that really needed a win? It ended up being 
3-2 like it did as opposed to 5-1, you know, because holding the lead has been the issue. Again, the second goal by the Islanders was something that, you know, not necessarily well defended and that the defenseman was able to take the puck wide. But the way it went in, uh, you could see the Kings had four men back and it just bounces off a skate. So uh, that's less concerning. Uh, I think there was a feeling, again, of control. I just mentioned the Islanders having trouble you know, scoring. At the same time, in that situation where the goaltender pulled, the Islanders are pretty, you know, pretty strong team because they are big and strong in front of the opposition's net. And that's what usually happens when you pull a goaltender. So I thought the Kings handled that pretty well. And then the final question, I know I saw Todd McClellan reference the fourth line. They struggled uh, in that first game against, I believe, New Jersey. But then Rasmus Kubari has that nice assist for Arthur Kelly of uh, Todd McClellan singled them out after the game for a strong performance. What did it mean for the fourth line to rebound like that? Yeah, it, it is important right now because it's more important because of Trevor Moore out of the lineup. So you move Fiala up to the top six. So your balance and spreading out the offense, which was a big plus for the Kings, kind of tightens up a little bit. So, so then it becomes important for those complementary players to, to do the job. And, uh, you know, it was. And I don't know if you listened to the whole game last night, but the first shift by Rasmus Kupari caught my attention. He was absolutely out there. Again, if Tom McClellan has cautioned us, let's not, you know, make him a 50-goal scorer. But at the same time, uh, again, I mentioned it later in the broadcast, and it's just one of those games where you'd like to take the video and show it to Rasmus. Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's just one of those games where ice was open for him, but he found that open ice. And when he was skating like he was, he can dictate play. He can really dictate the tempo of the shift. So the team is 1-1-1 one, one, and one through the first three games of this road trip. We're going to go ahead and open it up now to a uh, question and answer if you're listening and you have a question. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to go down the list of questions I've collected off of social media. And, Jim, I'm going to start with this one. Um, because you referenced Trevor Moore, um, the question from this fan is, uh, why aren't injuries more openly disclosed? Take Moore, for example. It's upper body injury. But there's never really anything more than that. When did that start? Because I know we've been talking in the industry lately about the scratched for, you know, roster management reasons or, you know, trade reasons, whatever the, the expressions are. Once these sort of expressions find their way into the industry, they seem to spread pretty quickly. So any thoughts on um, the upper or lower body injury and why teams aren't more forthcoming with injuries? Well, first of all, I think it started when, um, you know, the economics of the game came to the point where uh, the players are making as much uh, compensation as they are now. So that puts a higher priority on making sure safety is protected. Uh, I think, generally speaking, and I get this question quite a bit, it's only my opinion, but I think it's pretty safe. Uh, because in hockey, uh, you have the, you carry a stick. And a stick can be used to target a very specific area of an opposition player, which other sports don't have. So ankle, wrist, hand, something like that, you can go at. They will try to go after a player knowing that he has a specific injury somewhere in that area. So now you're increasing the odds or the chances that that player will be re-injured. Uh, you can call that savage, you can call that primitive, you can call that whatever you want, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but I think that is the difference between hockey and other sports. Uh, and again, you know, in football, say you're a lineman, you're going to make a contact every every play. In hockey, you don't necessarily make contact on every play, but if you know another player on the other has a shoulder injury, you are. You're going to go out of your way. You're going to finish that check every single time, uh, maybe even... You know, you talk about it before the game where you would go outside a team system, meaning, you know, first man in on pressure. If you don't get initial contact, sometimes coaches just want you to kind of turn and skate away without making contact. They don't want you to get held up behind the play. So in this instance, you would finish the check. It would become part of the game plan to do it knowing that another player on another team has a specific injury. So here in hockey, and that's why teams do not want to tell you specifics about injuries. I'm going to go ahead and add an extra wrinkle to it um, because I I can't speak to the Kings, but I certainly know that for the Ontario Reign, when people have inquired about you know certain players, why isn't player X in or out of the lineup? The answer is usually given pretty quickly. You know, last year there were some health concerns with different players, and people reached out to Jared Shaffron or, or whoever it was that was in charge of PR and that sort of thing, 
and the answer is returned, whether or not it's given a specific, you know, it's an ankle or a wrist or whether it's a more general upper body, lower body, general body soreness, I think was used one year by a different team. Um, but frequently people, and when I say people, I don't mean fans. I mean, frequently there aren't media outlets asking the question. So when Trevor Moore is out of the lineup and it's revealed to Bally's or Bally, um, that it's an upper body injury. Well, that's what the team is offering. It's up to somebody else to ask for more specifics. And frequently there aren't people asking for those specifics. So that's part of the reason I think, um, that that goes into it. Again, if you're listening to us right now, it's obviously Jim Fox. Uh, I'm Jesse Cohen. If you want to uh, submit a question, I see a lot of familiar faces listening right now. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, if, I, if I can bring up on that, that point of the injuries, if once I know it's upper or lower, I think you can ask more specifically, but then you are running the risk of losing the respect of your asking because if you continue to ask, they're going to even stop giving you even the limited information that they do. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with what you just talked about, meaning after you've been given upper or lower, then you're supposed to ask hand or shoulder. If that, if I'm interpreting, and you went out there a little bit too, so I couldn't hear your full answer, but uh, I just don't think that happens. Uh, I, I, I have no problem with it as an ex-player. I think it's, it protects the players. I do want to know the chances of a player being in the lineup. Is he on long-term in reserve? Is he probable? Is he possible? Is it doubtful? I want to know that because as a ticket buyer, I want to know who's going to be in the lineup. But I don't necessarily need to know the specifics. That's just the way I look at it as an ex-player. No, and I agree with you in general. I just meant I was referring to conversations I've seen recently where there was some confusion within the online fan community as to the status of a player. And if you go back uh-huh. and look and and search for it, you can find whether, oh, it's, yeah. whether it's a PR release or someone like Dooley yeah. saying, you know, so-and-so is out lower body injury. And then the reason it's not it go, doesn't go any further than that is that we don't have as constant a public conversation as say like in a Toronto or Vancouver, where there would be every day, how's Tanner Pearson's hand, how's Tanner Pearson's hand. Um, right. And it becomes a thing here. I, I would say, yeah, yeah. Sorry, also too, there, there are some teams just a specific to my job. Mm-hmm. There are some teams that say that their, their home broadcast cannot shoot when a player goes off for injury. I mean, so, when the, when the trainer comes over and takes a look at a hand or ribs or shoulder, or you can tell what's going on, they are told not to shoot that. We are not. That doesn't apply to us, but some teams go as far as they do not want their home team telecast showing the potential you know, information that gives you more specifics on an injury. I imagine that has more to do with safety and protecting the player from future targeting. Correct. Right. All right, so we're going to keep going down the list then. Uh, again, if you want to ask Jim a question, go ahead, request to be a speaker. Again, I see lots of familiar faces out there. But uh, one question that I saw from a few people was, what improvements do you see from last season to this season on this Kings team? The obvious one, and it's been so dramatic, uh, has been the power play. I mean, a lot of different reasons. Personnel that was already here, asked by a new assistant coach in Jim Hiller, to play different roles and go to different positions on the ice and revamp the entire power play. Secondly, new players like a Kevin Fiala who comes aboard and adds a different dimension that the team didn't have before. Uh, third, the amount of time the Kings spend practicing it has increased dramatically uh, to the point where it's, it's done almost every single day, whether it's going well or not. I don't know if you guys can hear me or not. My Wi-Fi dropped out for a second there. I apologize. Uh, can you, anybody hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, sorry about that. Sorry, you were saying the power play was being practiced every day, regardless of whether or not it's going well. Correct. And then you know, and then I, I think that uh, I lost my thought now. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> where I was, but uh, yeah, I mentioned three things why I thought the power play was working. Oh, another thing again: the depth, uh, Fiala on the third line. And, and I think uh, the increase in offense from the Kopitar unit of late, uh, and Andre specifically, falls into that category where uh, other teams have matchup concerns. And sometimes, you know, in the past, it used to be number one matchup concern, Kopitar. Well, now it's not. So then he gets the secondary pair. He gets the third pair. He gets the third. That, that makes a difference over a course of games. So uh, power play, depth offensively, um, I think those are the improvements uh, I've seen. 
We got a question from Nicholas. Uh, let me go ahead and add you, Nicholas. As soon as you're connected, go ahead and unmute. And uh, what's your question, Nick? Thanks for doing this, Mike. Uh, again, always love these. Appreciate it. Um, I just real, I Jim. I know that you don't get to watch a lot of the rain games and all the kind of players down there. But of the people that are called up, say like you know Bjornfoot or Spence or any of the players uh, that come up from time to time, who has impressed you? when you do get to actually look them in the lineup or say in practice? You've mentioned him, uh, Nicholas, and that is uh, Jordan Spence. Uh, he, he really impresses me as a player that can create offense, a mobile defenseman, but he has a safety element to his game that is there too. And that's a tough combination to have because usually when you, when you have that offensive ability to move the puck and, and change uh, the, the point of attack and, and have quickness to your game, usually that comes with a little bit of a risk. And um, I, I see less risk, risk from a guy like Jordan Spence, so I really like that. Uh, when Toby Bjornfoot comes up, and he's up with the team right now, uh, I know Jesse knows. I, I'm one of Toby's biggest supporters. Um, I think that, you know, he's only 21. I think that's one thing we have to remember. Now, of course, we also know we're at the trade deadline, and I think the Kings do not, just taking from what Rob Blake said the other day, the Kings would like to not take away from the current roster. You know, guys that are on the current roster and seeing ice time, and they would like to go with all prospects if if deals are there and if deals are to be made. So that's where those players you're talking about down in the rain might enter into conversation. But with Toby Bjornfoot, I, I, just, I, just, I just think he has a lot of upside. Not to the point of offensive point production, but a tempo-controlled defenseman who can control the tempo of a game because he skates so well. There's uh, also, thank you, Nicholas, for the question. Um, one additional note, Jim, that I discovered today. Um, in previous years, the AHL roster deadline has been the same day as the NHL trade deadline, meaning that in order for a player to be eligible to play in the AHL playoffs, they have to be on the rain roster. Last year, for example, it was the same day as the NHL trade deadline, which uh-huh. wound up hurting the Kings because – we had so many injuries last year that so many players were recalled to the Kings roster and you could only send so many of them back to Ontario because you only get four call-ups after the trade deadline. This year, the AHL roster deadline is March 10th, one week after the NHL trade deadline. So that theoretically gives the Kings an extra week and the rain as well to, to shuffle players and have them available uh, to play in Ontario if, if, for whatever reason, that needs to be the case. Um, you're still limited by the four recalls, but it gives you a little bit more flexibility. Kind of a related note, Tom McClellan mentioned the other day. Again, you know, he thought that Toby would have played more this year. Jordan Spence fits that category, but the Kings have been relatively healthy back on the blue line, so it really hasn't opened up those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, you think about that's honestly that's one way to answer that one question that the team has improved from last season, and it's not by anybody's fault or or good work or anything. Just the injuries, right? They played fourteen defensemen last year, I think, and this year we've had three stable pairs pretty much since early November. I feel like I can't remember when Brant Clark went was assigned to uh, Ontario on that conditioning stint, but other than that, we've seen a few games where Bjornfoot. And Spence slotted in, and I think Muvari has played the odd game here or there. But pretty much, we've had Anderson, Dowdy, Dersey, and Roy, and uh, and Edler and Walker. Right. So that's nice to have, and you just hope that again the the Kings can maintain that. And you know, again, we we know just that the silver lining last year was the ability to get a book and a complete report card on players. You know, with NHL time on ice. I mean, because of those injuries, guys had to play. Uh, Going back to the uh, power play also, Zach Dooley mentioned it sort of jokingly in a conversation uh, we had on the podcast with Alex Faust where we were talking about fans that yell shoot it, and I was talking about the power play. And Zach sort of derisively said, you know, (laughs) poor LA Kings fans with their third-ranked power play. And I had to look it up, but sure enough, the Kings are third in the league with a 25.6 conversion rate just behind the lightning at 25.9. And of course, everybody's behind Edmonton at an absurd 32.2. But I mean, Jim Hiller and Kevin Fiala and the, and the rest of the players that were on the roster last year have really committed to making the power play a dynamic force. It's, it's fun to watch. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, we had a conversation earlier in the year and 
you know, I was just watching the setups and how things were happening. And the Kings were about 15th at that point. And I, I just mentioned to you, I suggested that there's only one way this power play is going to go. And that's up because yeah. you could just tell, you could tell that the setups were different. Uh, no longer just going to an assigned position. Um, you know, a big, in all honesty, you know, that the change of getting Kopitar off the wall and more involved in front or as a bumper guy or just a whole bunch of different things and tweaks that were made. And, uh, again, the revamping has, has been, has been there. So. Yeah. And I have to call myself out for my own impatience because in the preseason, I saw a couple different looks on the power play and I thought, Oh, wonderful, different looks. And then I don't know, game three of the regular season, it wasn't perfect. And I was throwing my hands up and saying, Oh, come on. Why isn't it perfect? And of course now, Three quarters of the way through the season, it's not. There's no such thing as perfect, as Todd McClellan always says, but it's pretty, pretty good by comparison. So, just another reminder, uh, everybody, to um, to be patient. I'm going to follow up on Nicholas's question with another question I pulled on off of uh, fans online. His question was, "Who are you most impressed with so far uh, from the Ontario Reign?" But this question is on the roster as a whole. Who are you most impressed with so far, and who do you see turning it up a notch in the playoffs? assuming they make the playoffs. I know that probably makes you uncomfortable assuming that they do. The, the, again, the obvious is Kevin Fiala. Um, again, I, I remember when he played against the Kings, more specifically with Minnesota in the last couple of years, and I almost sounded Canadian there. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, he, I watched him play against the Kings, and I, then I'd look at the, score, or the, the scoring totals, and I'd go, he doesn't have as many points as he should. I mean, he's all over the ice. Now Now we see he's matured a little bit too. I think we all know he still has to mature even a little bit more. What we've seen recently, the, you know, it, it's been something else. It's not a complaint because it's part of his makeup, that edge he plays on, but he takes frustration penalties more than most where, you know, it's, it's after the play has happened type of thing. Uh, but all in all, I think it's, He's lived up to it and more uh, from the point of he doesn't need a certain player to play with to complement his game. He doesn't. He is the guy that drives the play, regardless of whether it's a big centerman, whether it's a fast winger, whether it's an offensive defenseman on the ice at the same time. It doesn't matter because he has and protects the puck and possesses the puck so much. I mean, he, he dictates what's going on. Uh, so he's the guy that's impressed me the most. Mikey Anderson, I think his continued improvement to be the shutdown guy, um, his work along the wall and along the board, I think it's not underrated anymore it's because the numbers are there and the analytics are telling you how successful and how effective he can be. Uh, he has certainly done that. I mean, you know, Phoenix Coffee coming in, that's got to be kind of a surprise. I, I know he was there for depth. But I don't think anyone thought he would play as much as he has. And, and the calming effect he's had on the team uh, because of his style. Uh, but that's, that's what's going on. And again, you know, I know it's been uh, chatted about, and, you know, when we talked before the season started, you know, and I, I think I was choosing my words specifically. I, I said, there's no question to me that Kevin Fiala will be the most productive king this season. And I think he's living up to that. Uh, is he the best player? That's still up for grabs because of certain roles and responsibilities and things of that sort. But, um, and again, I know it came up recently just chatting with, you know, it's, if the Kings are going to get better, if they are, they're going to continue to improve. It can't just be Kopitar every year at the top. It's got to be someone else. And that's someone else right now is Kevin Fiala. And it's great. When it comes to evaluating Fiala, do you find that he might be his own worst enemy when it comes to expectations? Because I was watching a play last night. Velarde was open-ish in the slot area. I can't remember if he smacked a stick on the ice, but he was clearly open and looking for a pass from Fiala. And Fiala had the option of passing it to him. And I found myself getting really annoyed that he didn't. But if it was any other player besides Fiala, I don't think I would have been annoyed i would have been like well come on gabe that's a tough pass but because it was fiala i was like how do you not see a wide open teammate like he's so good and so unpredictable that now i'm almost predicting that he's able to make something out of nothing all the time 
Yeah, we, we talk about it all the time, Jess. You know, so your expectations for Fiala, for Fiala have grown, grown, grown to the point where when he makes a great play, you're wanting to yeah. make a greater one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, next question. Uh, this dives back uh, into into Dustin Brown's retirement evening and Jim a little bit about um, your post-playing career as well. Through the lens of Matt Green, the question is, Matt Green gave a great speech, and they went on to say what an amazing speech it was, and it was. Um, why isn't he on TV and the media? The answer to that is simple. He doesn't want to be. Um, but then I wanted to pivot and ask, how does a player make that decision to transition to media from a post-playing career? Well, I can only – well, I, I can speak for others, but I'll speak for myself first. First of all uh, – Timing was very important for me in that uh, previous to uh, Gretzky joining the team, they were doing simulcast, radio and TV together. A uh, year after Gretzky joined, they decided to split up. They felt they could create two revenue streams instead of one, so split up the radio and TV, and so they needed someone. Uh, timing, I had recently retired. I had been doing a little bit of intermission TV work the previous season when I missed the season injured. Um, so I was kind of the guy on the spot uh, that kind of people knew. I didn't lobby for it, didn't think of it, didn't know they were going to split the simulcast up, and I was offered the position. Um, I think we see nowadays that because the media attention has grown over the years, that we, you, fans, you're able to spot a player and recognize a player who has decent communication skills or, or a personality that fits. And then you kind of go after them more so uh, than not. And I think that happens more and more. Then it would be, of course, up to that player to apply himself, uh, to look into it, to practice, to learn about the broadcasting and industry and the little ins and outs, uh, and then uh, and go from there. So, uh, uh, I think uh, you do hear about it all the time, though, where a guy is still playing and, you know, other media people will say, oh, he'd make a great broadcaster. He'd make a great, you know, he could do this very well. Uh, so I think the, the the recruitment process is intensified because there are just so much more, so many more games on TV. Fair. Um, I know Sean O'Donnell and Matt Green have both, not in great detail, expressed that they're, not everybody likes it. It's a it's a tough gig, right? I mean, uh, the surface the, the part that everybody sees, right, is you on camera talking to Alex, at, you know, as if all of this stuff is off the top of your head. But what they don't see is the insane amount of prep work that goes into it, so that you can be that calm and and fluid off the top of your head. Well, yeah. To me, if you're going to communicate effectively, you have to be confident, and in order to be confident, you have to be prepared. So that's just a uh, you know, the steps necessary. Now, a guy like Green, you see his personality now. We were able to see it a little bit in the room, but we were not aware. We weren't in the room. That's where Matt Green decided to be the, the leader that he is, the personality that he is, the funny guy that he is, the take the pressure guy off he is, uh, the noise guy that he brought the noise to the dressing room, uh, which creates energy. Uh, but he really... You know, when you just talk to him after a game or in the room, he, he didn't he didn't show that. He really didn't. He was quiet. Uh, I know he can be flippant uh, amongst his teammates. He can be sarcastic. But we didn't see that. You learn about it. You hear about it. And then when he gets to make a speech like he did, then you get a chance to see it. I thought it was particularly uh, appropriate, I guess is not the right word, but that uh, Scuderi, Green, and Brown each gave speeches that night. Each of them were tremendous, uh, and each of them in their own time have really tried to get out from under the spotlight of taking credit for the success of those teams. And, and you have said in the past, and we've gone on and on about it, that that is part of why that team had success, um, that nobody cared who got the credit. And then you see Matt Green and Dustin Brown specifically you know, talk about how uncomfortable they are getting the credit. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that those kinds of guys uh, are not interested in in media careers, although I think they would be excellent at them and, uh, you know, so much the worse for all of us that they don't. Um, this question, 
is a little bit, uh, well, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, so I'm going to read it and then give you my interpretation on it. The question is, how can the Kings get the biggest advantage over their opponents from their forward depth? My assumption is that is that what is the benefit of having so much depth among the forward core, and how does that play out in a game in a season? Yeah, it plays out again what we just we touched on it and how the opposition plans their checking and how they plan to match up. So, you know, each team usually has a number one pair on defense and they usually are paired against the other team's, you know, best line. Well, if you have, and it was talked about last year and I, I think we are just starting to see it. Not on this road trip. It happened on the previous long uh, six-game road trip the Kings were on. When Philippe Deneau was picked up by the Kings, there was this big discussion that he would take away enough defensive responsibility from Andre Kopitar that Kopitar would be able to spend more energy on offense during games and then be more productive. We didn't really see that last year because Deneau was so productive. I think on that six-game road trip, uh, and everyone talked about it, that line, the no line, was given the number one shutdown responsibility on the road. So that did open up a little bit of, you know, more more chance for Kopitar and his line mates, Tempe and Byfield, to produce because they're not always up against the top pair or the top checking line. And then what we can add is how Kevin Fiala has been used. Because Kevin doesn't need someone to help him be productive, you can put him on another line. So that's what it creates. It creates a lot of difficult decisions for opposition teams. And uh, I think we know the Kings are scoring more goals. All right, I'm just getting a note here on Twitter from uh, someone saying it looks like we might have a couple of questions for Jim out there, but I'm looking at the space and I don't see anybody requesting. So if you are requesting, yeah. and for some reason I can't see it, um, shoot me a, D- a, a DM or a tweet and I will try and, uh, and, and invite you to be a speaker. Apologies, I know my Wi-Fi cut out. I'm switched over to, um, to cell service now. But Jim, we have one more uh, question. I, I, have a, I have a question that came or an answer that I wanted to give right now. And yeah, sure. What, What's my new favorite team in the NHL? And and no question, it's the Columbus Blue Jackets. (laughs) Is that because they beat the uh, Oilers there today? (laughs) I would say so, yeah. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, Any thoughts on the playoff race before we get into uh, another couple of questions? Because it's it's very different from last year. You know, I think it's it's all back to expectation. That's what it's back to. You know, I, I I think I've applied it how I broadcasted this year. I've held the team to a higher standard than I did in the previous year or previous years. Uh, so you're expecting more. Having said that, you know, I was I, preseason. I was very careful and I was trying to be honest. It's, uh, I'm not as concerned with the standings as much as are the Kings improving as a group? Are they getting better? Uh, and I think they have taken steps. I think even recently, I let's hope so. It, one of my keys for tomorrow, I already wrote it down, is internal focus. Uh, playing the Rangers, right? A team that's losing right now 6-2 as I watch the game uh, to Washington. So they're going to be ornery. Uh, a team that's involved in trade rumors and Patrick Kane. You know what, King? For, forget about it. Focus on your own game. Who can, let us let the media talk about those other things. Because I think the Kings have been really focused in the last eh, 10 games or so. Uh, there's been some games late that got away. I know that. And that's 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 obvious. So holding leads, but just the overall focus has been pretty good and pretty intense. And I just want them to keep that up. But as far as the playoff race, it's I hoped at the beginning of the year, and I was that the Pacific would get four teams in instead of just three. It looks like that's very possible now. If that's the case, then I think the Kings, you know, the odds go up dramatically. Um. Do I hope they get first and they're only a couple points out? Yes. I'm just, I would put all my chips into make the playoffs as opposed to let's win first place. I mean, Pacific might get five teams. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. in play. Yeah. I'm not yeah. expecting Colorado to slip out of it, but I suppose it's, uh, it's possible. I've heard a lot of people talk about the Calgary Flames, uh, as if they were the 2011, 2012 Kings. I don't know that I put any stock into that, but. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of that. And again, just, that's just my opinion. And I know at the time, one time I get to slap myself on the back. But 
before the season started, I believed the 2012 Kings had a chance to win the Stanley Cup. I, and I said it publicly. So, I don't know if I put Calgary in that category. I really don't. I, I think they're underperforming, yes. And they might just get in like the Kings did. I think the Kings got in that year, the second last game of the regular season. But still, I felt that the structure and foundation of the 12 team was much more solid than I can see right now with Calgary. Um, of course, you have the common denominator uh, is the head coach, so that, that could be a factor. I mean, but let's, I, I know I probably sound like a homer when I say this, but 2011-2012 Jonathan Quick was unlike anything I think the National Hockey League has seen since. No, but Yeah, yes, but down the middle, you know, when sure. the Kings decide, you know, Kopitar, Carter, and Richards, uh, uh, righty, lefty on each defense pair with a mobile defenseman and a stay-at-home defenseman on all of those pairs. Uh, you mentioned the goaltending of Jonathan Quick, uh, the experience of a Justin Williams. That, those are, there was, it was, it, I'm going to say it this way. It was by far the best roster I felt the Kings had ever had in a long time. So that's the reason I felt they had a chance to, uh, to go, you know, do as well as they did. Now, down at the end of the season, was I worried that they were going to make the playoffs? Yes, I was worried, but I just felt the foundation and the, and the ads, and you know, when they added Carter, man, that just that just put them over the top. At the beginning of this season, uh, I don't remember who I was speaking to, but I said it in a few different places. I said if everything were to go exactly right for the Kings, that I believed that they were a cup contender, with the caveat that nothing ever goes right for any team in any season. Um, obviously, the things that didn't go right for the Kings this season are pretty evident. We talked earlier about some of the things that did go right. The offense is, has improved. The power play is incredible. What is – this is a conversation I see, uh, you know, amongst an, a bunch of different people. What is the biggest area where you could see improvement in order to make that leap from playoff contender to cup contender? Save percentage. Fair enough. And that may sound completely disrespectful to Phoenix Copley, a guy whose numbers are through the roof, wins and losses. But again, the deeper analytics says that the Kings do a good job of preventing chances and the save percentage doesn't add up to where it should be. Um, and, and again, and it's, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm stating anything, I think, and we're at the trade deadline. I mean, I still think the Kings need a left-handed defenseman with size, if possible. Uh, less of a dangler, more of a guy stay-at-home guy. Uh, the name that's out there is Chikrin. He would bring both because he's fast and dynamic and all that. But So those are the areas, I think. And I, and I think uh, the Kings perhaps are on their way. I, again, if they can keep this focus I've seen of late, I think you know during certain segments of games, uh, they've really taken over games. So we can get that save percentage to an area where it's middle of the league, and uh, then, if possible, just you know, shore up with a left-handed defenseman. Nicholas has a question. He joined us earlier. This one is uh, submitted on Twitter. He says Kupari and Byfield were flying last night, both looking really fast. Do you think, Jim, that this is them not thinking the game anymore and just reacting? And is that the next step in their development? Uh, and how is something like that coached? Uh, that's great. That's a great question, Nicholas. Uh, I think it's different for each guy, that's my opinion. I think that Byfield's quickness and skill is apparent. I think he has to slow his game down, at least in his head. I think he, at times, is going a million miles an hour. And when he learns, and he, he is, he's, he's possessing the puck more, he's protecting the puck more, he's finding open men more than he has in the past. So that's, that's he's taking strides. I just think what... You'll, there'll be a time where he'll get a confidence level where all of a sudden you'll just notice it in his body language where, man, and that means just this game slows down and you just start to be way more effective. I think with Kupari, it's the other way. It's to find a way to get to that top gear because last night was, again, I, first shift. I mean, I could he was just wide. Now, if he could make that a part of his game, then you you have a big body that can skate. And again, it just makes the Kings even that much more difficult to defend. 
uh, I want to be careful here because I want to be protective. I, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that again he's going to be a 50 goal scorer all of a sudden. Or, but I just think there are certain. There was a shift in the New Jersey game. Jersey tied it up 2-2, and Adrian Kempe came on the ice for the next shift. Kings didn't score, but he possessed the puck the entire shift. And then when he lost it, he skated hard. That was a shift that the Kings were missing of late to hold on to leads and all that. And he took so that's that's the type of shift I think a Kupari could have two or three times a game. Where you know what, but he's just got to find a way. Like we know about the skating ability, and, and it's interesting. You know they they have those measurement devices on the players that can measure heart rate and things of that sort. Can also measure how fast they're skating, and certain players are very fast in practice, and in game they don't get anywhere near that top speed because they just can't find the opening. I think that's where it is for Rasmus right now. So I think for Quentin, it is to slow it down and for Rasmus to speed it up. We've got uh, a question from Jim McCann. Jim, he wants to know what your thoughts uh, were last night with about a minute left when both Kings forwards peeled to the bench. He says he would have preferred one continue to forecheck and then change uh, to slow the Devils breakout. I'm not sure if he's referring back to the Devils game or if that was at the end of the uh, Islanders game last night. But any thoughts uh, or or you know what he's talking about? I do. I, I think it's the Islanders game because it caught me uh, my attention too. I, I was just in the middle of saying, well, the Kings got to put the pressure and, and they drop back. That's the one thing first. They all have to be on the same page. And if that's what they're being instructed to do, that's what they should do. There are certain cues that you take to decide whether you want to keep the first man pressure on or not. And perhaps one of those cues were not there. So they did drop back into the 1-3-1, which usually allows the team to get to the red line and dump it in. And that's what you try to do in the 1-3-1, to force dump-ins as opposed to carry it. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I want all five guys to be on the same page. But uh, I'll be honest, I wouldn't mind in that situation to see first man pressure a little bit stronger. All right, one final question that I have written down. So uh, anybody listening, if you want to get a question in now is your chance. Request to be a speaker or if you're listening on a laptop or a device that won't let you uh, speak, you can go ahead and tweet at me or Jim. Get those questions in because uh, we've got one final one here that I collected from online. And that is, uh, do you ever miss calling games with Bob Miller? Oh, sure. Yeah, I miss Bob all the time. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, 27 years, man. Uh and, you know, the difference is, let's, let's face it, is that, you know, we went, we were with two Stanley Cup winning teams at, at one point in 12 and 14. And that, even though, you know, in those years in the playoffs, uh, you know, we only did the first round, we continued to do pre and post game shows. And we, you know, for the clinching games, we did a DVD and things of that sort. So, uh, no, that's, you know, that's, that's a bond that, uh, that will never go away because, uh, of all the years we spent together, but then finally near the end of our tenure together, we were able to do and follow and broadcast two Stanley Cup championships in one form or another. And uh, that's, you know, <laughs> it's not the same as winning as a, as a player, but I, I will still use the same phrase. It's something that they can't take away from us. One real final one, and uh, since I haven't seen anybody uh, request to speak or tweet out a question, this will be the final one, Jim. It's a sort of a silly one because I, of course, will always be jealous of your hair. Uh, the question was, have you ever, and I will amend it to be, will you ever change your uh, your hairdo? My hair is changing, uh, not not the way I want it to. Um, uh, so if you get a chance to get a look at the top of my head, you'll notice uh, uh, a sparse assortment of hair. So it is changing, and uh, you know what? I, I always do it. Uh, I I don't. <laughs> my dad did it. I, I kind of like the low. I don't mind doing buzz cuts every once in a while, just for the low maintenance. You know, it's it's so much easier. Uh, get up in the morning, shower, and shake off like a dog, and you're that you're ready. And uh, that that's something. Uh, uh, I I, w- I wouldn't count out out of my future. Well, I'm looking at a photograph of you right now on my laptop, and it says it's from 1980, and you've got the uh, the hockey hair, not necessarily a full mullet, but yeah, and I had a lot longer than it is today. Yeah, I had a part in the middle that was a lot thicker. And, uh, the gentleman who cuts my hair, his name is Robin Felix. Uh, been going to him for probably 30 years. Uh, he said he, he always told me he said you don't have thick hair. He said you have a lot of thin ones. So. <laughs> 
So that's well, the way he put it. That's nicer than mine at any rate, <laughs> however you want to qualify it. Um, Low maintenance. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, it is definitely that. Oh, I've just seen two notifications. Uh, oh, Perfect. all right. One final question actually here about, again, about hair. Michael wants to know, does it bother you as an athlete when a team has rules like no facial hair, no long hair, must wear a jacket, et cetera? I think the modern day player does have an issue with that because, you know, they, and you know what, in hockey, I think we hear it all the time that we want our players to show more personality and, you know, not be the team first guys we want all the time. You want them to step out every once in a while and, and show an individuality. And I think we do see that. We hear that more. So uh, I think maybe the modern day players have an issue with it. I, I think because of, just let, just let me throw it out there as a theory. And it's kind of like, you know, the players do have more power nowadays as far as the collective bargaining agreement compared to when I played. Like when I played, we didn't have free agency. So, you know, there was no real form of free agency. Um, and it was very restrictive when you did. Now players can move around a little bit more so. So with the less control that teams have in the other areas, I think some teams look to get control in those types of areas where, you know, no phones in the locker room, no hats worn backwards, no long hair. You saw the lose rules last night if you were watching the broadcast with Lou Lamorello. Again, he, he is one of the most conservative, uh, old-fashioned, traditional. Um, so he has some of those rules. Uh, you know what? I... I wouldn't mind happening, and it's just, if it doesn't have to be coat and tie, at least a jacket, you can be, you know, you can spruce it up. I still want to see that. Uh, I don't want to see the, you know, the sweatsuits and things of that sort coming to a game. I I just think it's, that's just, it's just kind of like setting the tone to go to work. That's all it is for me. Let's put a pin in the conversation about uh, old school coaches, because I know you and I have talked about the movie Whiplash. But I was just listening to uh, a podcast on the Ringer Network uh, hosted by Bill Simmons about the movie Whiplash. And they were drawing the connection to it to sports movies. And they were having the larger conversation about has the way coaching is done and must be done changed as a result of societal changes. No Um, question. No question. I I would say this. I would say... And I guess it should. It is foreign to me just because of the way I grew up and the era I grew up in. But I could see times where human resource department gets involved in the coaches, the way he handles the situation, either inside or outside the locker room. Uh, in my day, you would never even think of that. But I could see that, you know, there are certain values that need to be respected regardless of your occupation. And um, uh, I could see that happening, which, again, I, man, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we would never, ever, ever think of that. But I could see that being a possibility. I, I think coaches have changed. I think we still have a few that are uh, in the, the uh, you know, more traditional style. But there's no question the communication techniques that coaches use nowadays are very, very different than what they have been in the past. Well, I think it bleeds over into the business side too, is the economics of the game change and the staffs. You know, like we have, what, over 150 people, I think, in the office on any given day here. And, you know, I know from talking to David Courtney in the past that as recently as, you know, the late 80s, there were maybe a dozen people, two dozen people in the office. I mean, you yourself founded King's Care, did you not? Now we have like an entire staff running it. Yeah, yeah, that's, oh man, I remember when we, you know, I, I still remember, I got a great, I think it's a good story. Um, when the Anschutz Entertainment Group took over, I was working on tipping, doing the broadcasting, getting everything, and my wife Susie was in, you know, so my wife Susie would come into the office, at a, you know, for King's Game to watch the game, but she would come to the office about six o'clock. And she would go upstairs in the office when we had, like you said, we had four or five people. That's it. I mean, you know, that was it. And, you know, not counting sales, but, you know, you had Marsha Galloway, who was uh, the uh, assistant, uh, executive assistant for the general manager. You had the general manager. You really didn't have an uh, assistant general manager. You had a one PR person. And, you know, 
that, that's that's about it, you know. Well, Susie would come in at six o'clock and she she would start working on a computer there and getting stuff up. We're, we're planning and preparing for tipping. She's doing this. She's volunteering this. I remember one of the executives came in from the entry center entertainment group and started talking to her and asked her questions about you know what's the so thinking that she worked there. And she did. She was just volunteering and helping out, and that's how, that's how sparse it was. I mean, it was it was hardly anyone involved. And nowadays, and yeah, you have you're you're exactly right, Jesse. The change in the industry, uh, the whole approach. Uh, you know what happens now when you walk in our offices? Immediately, you see twenty five people, automatic, right? Boom, right off the bat. And and it you know it requires a, a shifting of. Personality is probably too strong a word, but like, let's say on a game day, you and I are sitting out there with the rest of the media contingent watching practice. Then, you know, five minutes later, we're in the locker room with the guys. Then, ten minutes later, we're in a private locker room with Todd McClellan. And then, twenty minutes after that, we're in an office surrounded by, you know, people in sales, in HR, in legal, in GP, in ticketing, in social media production. Like, it's you know it. I guess my point is it just requires a, a, a softer touch maybe than it did uh, when Lou Lamarillo was was running things. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. All right, Jim, I'm going to let you get on with your day. Enjoy the rest of the road trip. Everybody, thank you for joining us. Uh, and we will do this again at some point. The replay of this should be available Monday morning. Jim, thank you. Jesse, thanks very much. Thanks for everyone for listening and chiming in and talking and uh Getting getting down to that, you know, I, I said it the first game of this trip when we played Minnesota. That's the that's the first time this year I really felt like the playoff race is on, and it's on right now. It certainly is, and uh, we've got about a quarter of the season left. So thank you, everybody. Go Kings, go. Go Kings.